Luke chapter 2. We've been studying Luke's account of uh, the birth of Christ. Begin with uh, the setting of Christ's birth in uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, last week we looked at the announcement of Christ's birth in verses 8 through 12. And this morning we want to look at the glory of Christ's birth in verses 13 through 14. Uh, familiar words we'll be covering, uh, in particular the Song of the Angels in verse 14. Uh, instead of just dropping in, let's go back to verse 8 and begin reading there and read through uh, verse 14 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless what we've read, and let's pause and ask for help as we continue uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask for assistance. Please let this not be a tired refrain to us. Help us to see it with new eyes. May your spirit freshen our outlook on this page. See things in a, in a new way this morning. Those of us who've heard these words again and again, May uh, we be careful not to take them for granted. Reveal your truth to us through your word, Father. By your good spirit, strengthen me to preach clearly this morning. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Well, as we gather the day after Christmas, and with the story of um, Christ's birth still fresh on your mind, I'd like to spring a pop quiz on you today. So if you pull out a sheet of paper, please, and a pencil, sharpen number two pencil. I'm, of course not, uh, but I'm going to give you a brief uh, quiz, uh, four multiple choice questions to, to see just how well you know the biblical account of Christ's birth. Now, elders and deacons have heard these already this year, so you may not tap them for help on these questions. But here are briefly four questions, and uh, I'll put them on the put them on the. Uh, screen behind me for you. Who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? And your options here are the angel, Mary's mother, or Caesar Augustus. If you were here two weeks ago for the setting of Christ's birth, you know the answer is, in fact, Caesar Augustus is the one who told them to go to Bethlehem. All right. So that was one out of one. The wise men found Jesus where? The answers are manger. Please don't share your answers out loud. <laughs> a manger, a house, or a stable. 
Well, contrary to most manger scenes uh, that we see, they found Jesus in a house. In fact, Matthew 2.11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So go home to that manger scene, and like one of our families have done, take those wise men out and put them in the kitchen or someplace else because it took them a long time to get to uh, the house from uh, where they came, which is probably over near Iran. All right, the third question. What did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? The, answers, the options are there is no room in the inn. I have a stable you can use, or C, none of the above. And the correct answer is, of course, C, none of the above. We assume they were in some kind of lean-to uh, shelter. Uh, there is no mention of an innkeeper in Scripture. Uh, the inn that Luke refers to uh, most likely uh, was some kind of temporary public shelter, not unlike the ones you see on the Appalachian Trail, the, the shelters that hikers use. These were built by the Romans uh, to house pilgrims that would come into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This was not a commercial inn like you and I would think of. Bethlehem, far too small to have anything uh, along those lines. So the correct answer is C. So there goes out the window most uh, Christmas pageants, you know, with the, with the innkeeper. All right, fourth and finally, uh, what is a heavenly host? And the possibilities are an angelic armor, uh, an angelic army, an angelic choir, or the angel at the gates of heaven. That's my favorite answer, the third one, but that is incorrect. The correct answer is, of course, A. It's an angelic army. Now, this army probably did sing, but they were primarily angelic warriors, uh, not sopranos with flowing blonde hair and, or little cherubs uh, with cute, round, chubby cheeks. These were about the most terrifying thing you can imagine showing up in the middle of the night. And when they could belt out a tune, they gave new meaning to the words, belt out a tune. So it's this last question that relates to the passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, the account of Christ's birth, of course, has been become embellished over the years with details that don't conform to what the Bible says. We frequently see the wise men showing up at the manger. Uh, the role of the innkeeper uh, has been adapted from our modern concept of a commercial inn. Many of those uh, embellishments are well-meaning, but go beyond what the Bible says. And this is why we must be careful to clarify the, the biblical record again and again and again, because it has become overlaid with tradition um, and we need each year to study what God's Word has to say about the birth of our Savior. There is one part of the story that especially needs to be clarified, and that is the Song of the Angels. Demands uh, clarification. This part of the Christmas story is perhaps the most understood part of all. 
The song that the angels sang is often called the glory in excelsis Deo, glory uh, to God in the highest. Uh, and uh, the familiar song that some of us have perhaps memorized, we've memorized from the King James Version. Uh, and the King James Version says this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Many believe that uh, these words are the song of the angels and that this is some kind of universal declaration of peace toward all mankind. It's a phrase that is often quoted in, in the secular world this time of year. And, and these words form some kind of sentimental wish for peace and reconciliation that look good on the inside of a Christmas card. But look at what your Bible says. Glance down to your lap and note what your Bible says. There should be a Bible under the chair in front of you somewhere. If you don't have one with you today or don't have one on your phone, look at Luke 2, 13 again with me. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is not what the King James Version says. The one that we've all, all so familiar with, uh, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's not what the English Standard Version that many of us use uh, says. Uh, although I appreciate the beauty of the King James Version, the language of that version, uh, most scholars now um, have, a, have uh, adapted this version of verse 14 and believe this is the correct uh, version from the original language. That, that goes to you if you're holding a King James Bible today or a new King James. Uh, your version is different from what the ESV says. And I would encourage you to, to pick up the Bible from the rack in the chair in front of you and follow along from an ESV this morning. You remember that, that as this is announced to the shepherds that an angelic warrior has just appeared to them in, in the pitch dark of night. And, and again, this was not a cute little uh, uh, chubby angel. Uh, uh, nor was it a, a beautiful female version of an angel uh, with uh, flowing curls. And you can see, uh, it's difficult to see, but there are uh, little angelettes <laughs> all around. She has a very nice uh, hairpiece. But the problem with either of these versions is difficult to figure out how the shepherds could be terrified of them. In fact, someone has pointed out that it is the little angelettes that seem to be more terrified than, than the shepherds. Um, trusty dog keeping watch over the flock by night as well. You know, that's a nice touch there. Uh, but this is one angelic warrior. And if this wasn't startling enough, it, it, the text says he just appeared. Uh, they didn't see him coming it's as though he stepped through a curtain that separates eternity from earth. But now there's a multitude, probably a group too large to number. It's described as a heavenly host, a host being 
the Greek word for a, a group of soldiers, or we would say a company of angelic warriors splitting the night open with their outburst of praise. Why do the angels burst out in praise? What's the reason for their angelic exclamation? Is it a song praising God for universal peace, as many believe, or is it a song in praise of something else? I believe that this song communicates something else entirely. It was something beside a generic wish for peace on earth that made the angels erupt like this, and it's something that will hopefully make us erupt in praise as well this morning. Why do they burst out in praise? This is what we want to find out today. And there are two reasons for their outburst. And they're both found in verse 14 of our passage. And, and do follow along. The, the first reason for their angelic outburst is because the Savior will bring glory to God. The, the angels... It, it, uh, erupt in praise because the newborn Savior will glorify God. Look at verse 14 again. Glory to God in the highest. What do they mean by that? Glory to God. Uh, is there some way that you and I can add to the brightness uh, of God, of God. Uh, what does the army mean by glory be to God in the highest? Well, I want to encourage you to, to hang with me. We hear this word thrown out so often, glory, especially if you grew up in the church, that it, it's become a cliche, perhaps, um, Perhaps you heard it shouted out in a church growing up, and, but it's never been defined for you. I want to suggest there are three things we need to understand about God's glory to understand what these angels are, what their exclamation is about. First of all, uh, God's glory is his brightness and fame. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's usually referring to one of two things. One thing that glory refers to is God's brightness, his, his brilliance, his radiance, his holy majesty. The first angel that appeared to the shepherds uh, last week, up in verse 9, was reflecting the brilliant radiance of God from standing in his presence. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That is, around the shepherds. This angelic warrior was so bright, so brilliant, and it wasn't even his. That's just the glory reflected uh, from the Lord on these men. And, and it says, and they were filled with great fear. Uh, part of their fear came from this brightness and radiance. That's part of glory. But note there's another part, and, and that's fame. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's often referring to his fame, his greatness, his reputation. 
we're often referring to his infinite and awesome greatness when we talk about the glory of God, the, the beauty of his attributes, his infinite majesty, his great fame. John Piper defines glory like this. He says, glory is not easy to define. It, it is like beauty. How would you define beauty? Some things we have to point at rather than define. But let me try. God's glory is the beauty of his manifold per perfections. The beauty of his many perfections, you could say. It can refer to the bright and awesome radiance that sometimes breaks forth in visible manifestations, verse 9. Or it can refer to the infinite moral excellence of his character, verse 14. In either case, it signifies a reality of infinite greatness and worth. When these angels uh, erupt in praise, saying, Glory to God in the highest, glory be to God in the highest, they're referring to this second idea, uh, the second half of this uh, phrase here, the fame part, the infinite moral excellence of his character. They mean that this newborn Savior is going to magnify the infinite greatness and worth of God. This Savior is going to add to God's great fame, increase God's great reputation. It's not that he'll make him any brighter, the first idea you see on the screen. It's that the Savior will make him seem even greater. And that's the second idea on the screen. The glory of God, in addition to his brightness, refers also to his fame. This is the first thing we need to understand about God's glory. Here's the second thing. And this might be a little hard to swallow. The second thing we see about the glory of God in Scripture is that it is his main goal throughout the Bible. Above all things in Scripture, what is God after? He's after his own glory. Now, when you and I do that, we call that arrogance. But it's not arrogant if you really are the greatest thing in the entire universe. It's absolutely right to promote your own fame and glory if you know that your very being is the only thing that will satisfy the soul of a sinner. When God promotes his glory, it is an act of sheer love and grace to you and me, that he holds himself out and says, be satisfied with me. That's the only thing that works. I wonder if you think that way. As you look at another year ahead, 2022, and you are baffled by whatever... COVID is doing, and who knows what letter of the alphabet will be in next year. And uncertainty in the economy, and mask mandates, and all that stuff. 
What's the only thing that's going to satisfy your being in the midst of all that? It is the glory of God. His supremacy, his, if I could use this word, awesomeness, it's a made-up word. Everything is awesome in our world, and so really nothing is awesome. But there is one awesome thing in the universe, and that is God. He alone is worthy of the title awesome. You're all nice people, but none of you are really awesome. Well, this is his main goal throughout Scripture, is to promote his glory. Throughout the Word, we see God passionately defending his great name, his fame, his glory. He doesn't just let it slip that some people don't glorify him. And if, if you're not sure about what I'm saying, pick up Desiring God by John Piper, uh, who does a very thorough job of demonstrating this very thing through, through passage after passage of Scripture. God's main goal throughout the Bible is to display and defend His own greatness. Here are just a few examples. Isaiah 42.8, where he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. I will not share my greatness with anything else. Chapter 48, a few chapters later, uh, the Lord says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, speaking to Israel. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Uh, it's throughout the word of God we see phrase after phrase like this. Here's another very clear example from Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Let me just... Bring up a huge error in our Christian thinking. And that error is, God always acts for my sake. He always does what he does to benefit me supremely. Now we do benefit. But he's, this says uh, something completely different. Uh, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, these and others reveal that God's chief end, his main goal all throughout the Bible is his glory and fame. 
again, that might come as disturbing to learn that God's main goal in Scripture is not you. If I could put it like this, God is not man-centered. God is God-centered. His chief end is not even saving sinners. It is promoting His own glory. God's priority in His church is not fellowship in the body of Christ. It is His glory. Uh, several passages, Numbers 14, and I think another one is, is Isaiah. I can't remember the chapter right now, but the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And I, uh, Numbers 14, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Again, listen to John Piper, who's whose bread and butter is talking about the glory of God. He says, My conclusion is that God's own glory is uppermost in his own affections, meaning that's what he cares about the most. In everything he does, his purpose is to preserve and display that glory. To say that his own glory is uppermost in his own affections means that he puts a greater value on it than on, on, on anything else. He delights in his glory above all things. And I want to put you, put it to you that according to the Bible, that is a true statement. There's one more thing I want to bring out as we talk about the glory of God that the angels are singing about. Glory be to God. And the third thing is that God's glory is his goal in saving sinners. That's why he saves sinners is to glorify his great name. Uh, not to show us how great we are. Oh, you're so important. I had to save you. I could not go on with my universe until I knew that you would come to faith in my son. That's so often what we're told, that we are made the center of, of his operations. He doesn't put us at the center. He saves us to make himself look glorious so that you and I will look away from ourselves to the glory of God and see, wow! Even in saving sinners, his primary goal is to display his own greatness. We read Ephesians chapter 1 just a few moments ago. And not once, and not twice, three times in those verses, God said that very thing. That his goal in saving sinners was the proclamation of his own greatness. I'm going to flip there and I'm going to uh, read a couple of those verses. I'm not going to read the whole passage again but just want to point out where he says this in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 14 is actually in the original language. One sentence. Talk about run-on sentences. So you homeschoolers, just go to, go to mom and say, well, how do I compare to Paul? You know, That doesn't work, so don't do that. That won't be a good idea. You see, even in our English Bible, they've broken it up so we can read it easier. 
verses 3 through 14, just one long run-on sentence that, that declares that his goal in this whole saving sinners is the glory, his own glory. So drop down to verse 5 and, and looking at the very uh, end of verse 5, uh, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he blessed us in the beloved. He, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Drop down to verse 12. He'll say it a second time. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The point is, is as, as God saves us and we recognize what he's done, we'll, we'll say, oh, isn't God great for saving us? And then uh, about the middle of verse uh, 12, towards the end of the praise of his glory, okay, end of verse 13, uh, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Why does God save sinners? It's to glorify and magnify his awesome grace and mercy, his majesty in, in the whole operation. Salvation primarily brings God glory and fame. Certainly, it rescues us from sin. I am not saying it doesn't. We are rescued from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. But all of salvation glorifies God because it begins with Him. When you trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, Things were in motion long before you said that prayer or prayed that prayer or did whatever you did. Wheels were turning in eternity a long time before you ever got to the point where you bowed the knee to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Uh, it can't begin with us. And the reason salvation cannot begin with us is because of phrases like these from Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then Romans 8 says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, a very religious and, and uh, outstandingly moral person, what does he say to him? You must be born again. It must Begin with God. John 1, 12 and 13 is explicit. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now how did that happen? It says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, in other words, you didn't become a believer just because you decided to become a believer and to give your life to Jesus Christ. 
and to trust him as your Savior and Lord. Yes, you did that, but it says, nor of the will of man, but of God. Meaning we were born of the will of God. Jesus clarifies this in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And don't we thank God for that drawing? Because you and I were dead as a plank of wood. There was nothing to commend us to God. No church attendance, no amount of being a nice guy, no baptism, no church membership. God must work first because the word says we were dead in trespasses and sins. What do we see in Luke 2? We see God initiating salvation by sending a Savior to those in darkness. Salvation glorifies God because it begins with Him. Starts with Him. Philippians 1.6 Being confident that He who began a good work in you will carry it on till the day of completion. And furthermore, not only does salvation glorify God because it begins with Him, it glorifies God because it ends with Him. We become Christ followers because of God's initiative. We continue as Christ followers by God's initiative. The very process of following Jesus Christ and struggling with sin and learning to resist the power of sin... Uh, uh, is, is done by the Spirit of God, in, which He initiates in us. And, and Paul makes this clear too. Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, carry it on to the end. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't have to work up a head of steam to follow Christ. I do put myself in positions uh, that I know he blesses. I, I try to put myself in the word every day. But the will to do that comes from him. I dread to think what I would have to do if I had to cough it up on my own. And there's a lot of people who've tried. You know them, don't you? I can't do this Christianity thing. And we should say, you're absolutely right. You can't. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It, this is how salvation glorifies God. Uh, it, it begins with him. It ends with him. It's all his doing. Jonah said in uh, uh, Jonah 2, I believe, salvation belongs to the Lord. Max Lucado gives a good illustration of this. And he, in his first church, he writes, 
we had more than our share of southern ladies who loved to cook. Anybody remember Devon Hassler's biscuits? Oh. It's a moment of silence for... Southern ladies who love to cook, I fit in well because I was a single guy who loved to eat. Our potlucks were major events. I counted on those potluck dinners for my survival while others were planning what to cook. I was studying my kitchen shelves to see what I could offer. The result was pitiful. One of my better offerings was an unopened sack of chips. Another time, I took a half-empty jar of peanuts. Wasn't much, but no one ever complained. Those ladies would take my jar of peanuts, set it on the long table with the rest of the food, and hand me a plate. Go ahead. Don't be bashful. Fill up your plate. And I would. Mashed potatoes and gravy, roast beef, fried chicken. I, I came like a pauper and ate like a king. The Apostle Paul would have loved the symbolism of those potlucks. He would say that, God in Christ does for us precisely what those women did for me. Our best efforts are peanuts. God initiates our salvation. God carries it to the end. For his glory. Think about why so many people share the good news. And yes, we should share the good news. Many people share the gospel out of love. God's love for sinners, our love for lost people. Yes, the love of Christ constrains us, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.14. God so loved the world, John 3.16. That's a valid biblical reason to share the gospel, but it's not the main reason. Many people share the gospel to avoid eternal punishment, to save people from an eternal hell, to the just judgment of God on our sin. That's also a very valid biblical reason to share the good news, but it's not the main reason. Many share the gospel because they're commanded to. Go and make disciples of all nations. Again, a very valid biblical reason to share the gospel. It's not the main reason. The main reason, the apex, the goal, the chief end in salvation is the glory of God. God saves sinners to put his own greatness on display. God saves sinners to magnify his great mercy and love. And so this is why the angels burst out and explode and erupt in praise. They erupt uh, because God is sending a Savior and revealing that salvation is His work. It begins with Him. It ends with Him. And the whole process magnifies His infinite greatness. They erupt with praise because the Savior brings glory to God. There's a second reason that they erupt in praise. The second reason they burst out in praise is because the Savior also brings peace to men. The angel's song continues, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Again, that phrase is often misunderstood, it's often used to express some kind of vague sentimental notion, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. 
that Christ's birth is somehow intended to bring peace and goodwill among people and among nations. And again, I mentioned that one reason it's misunderstood is because some of our Bibles say something different. But I, I believe the correct way to, to say it is the way the ESV uh, does, or maybe another newer version you're holding, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or you could say peace toward men on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. The second reason they erupt in praise is because the Savior brings peace to men. Now, what do they mean by that? What kind of peace are we talking about? Well, we need to answer three questions to get to the end of this. Uh, first of all, what kind of peace are we talking about? Is it peace between nation and nation? Certainly that's a good thing. And uh, one social group and another social group, certainly that's a great thing. We need peace and reconciliation, um, but that's not our greatest need. Our most crucial need isn't peace with other people. And the peace the angels talk about isn't peace between men and other men. The kind of peace they're talking about and the kind of peace we need, uh, the peace that Christ's birth ushers in is peace between men and God. Peace between men and God. The second question, why do we need that kind of peace? Romans 8, that we have already mentioned, says that you and I are hostile to God's law. Colossians 1 tells us that we were alienated and hostile in mind. What does the Bible really say? It doesn't portray us as friends of God who have had a slight disagreement. Oh, I know the Bible says this, but I know God just kind of winks at me and lets me slide. What does the Bible say? It says that outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are his enemies. Enemies. the nice guy who goes to church every Sunday, but has yet to trust in Christ as his Savior and Lord. Is he a Christian? According to the Bible, he's an enemy. That's the word Paul uses in Romans 5. Romans 3 says there's no one who seeks after God. And like the shepherds that we looked at at length last Sunday, outside of Christ, we are all lowly and lost. This is why we need the peace the angels are singing about. There is conflict. There is, there is hostility between us and God, between His holiness and our unholiness. And you might say, well, nobody's perfect. That's the problem. You're exactly right. God offers us that perfection in Jesus, his son. The third question we have to ask, 
who gets this peace? Who gets this peace that the angels sing about? Verse 14, again, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or peace uh, to those on whom his favor rests. The people who get this peace are those who God draws to himself to trust in Jesus, his son, for the forgiveness of their sins. The people who get this peace are those on whom his sovereign favor rests. The people who get this peace are those he has chosen before the foundation of the world and, and those he leads to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The people who get peace are those that he unconditionally elects to those whom he draws, to those whom, on whom his favor rests. Romans 5.1 shouts to us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in other words, we've trusted in the, the atoning death of Jesus, what he did on the cross, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we will get peace. When you trust in Jesus, you have peace with God. Hostilities end. What a, what a great verse. What a great verse when the devil comes knocking and, and reminds you of just what a rotten Christian you are. Pow, you stink. And boy, if you've memorized this verse, to pause and say, wait a minute, I do stink. <laughs> but because of Christ... I have peace with God. The hostilities have ceased. The war's over. And I'm now a friend of God. On March 10th, 1974, Lieutenant Hiroo Onada was the last World War II Japanese soldier to surrender. 1974. The war ended in 1945. Onada had been left on the island Lubang in the Philippines on December 25, 1944, with the command to carry on the mission even if Japan surrenders. Four other Japanese soldiers were left on the island as Japan evacuated Lubang. One soldier surrendered in 1950. Another was killed in a skirmish with local police in 1954. Another was killed in 1972. Onada continued his war alone. All efforts to convince him to surrender or to capture him failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender and that Japan was now an ally of the United States. Leaflets were dropped over the jungle begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan. He refused to believe or surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land and raided the fields and gardens of local citizens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 Philippine nationals during his 29-year personal war. 
Almost half a million dollars was spent trying to locate and convince him to surrender. 13,000 men were used to try to locate him. Finally, on March 10, 1974, almost 30 years after World War II ended, Onada surrendered his rusty sword after receiving a personal command from his former superior officer who read the terms of the ceasefire order. Onada handed his sword to President Marcos, who pardoned him. The war was over. Onada was 22 years old when left on the island. He returned a prematurely aged man of 52. Onada stated, nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. Like Onada, many are fighting a lonely battle against the God who is offering reconciliation and peace through faith in Jesus Christ. The angels are singing this announcement that essentially says, for you, this war could be over. If you will but turn away from your sin to trust in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross, to surrender your life to him, hostilities will cease and you can lay down your sword and have peace with God. This is the kind of person who gets the peace. It's peace between God and you. And we need it because we're at war. And the people who get it are those on whom his favor rests. People, people he draws to himself and, and those who trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. It begs the question, my friend, if, if you've done that today. Uh, I don't care if you've grown up in a church and you think you're okay. Until you come to grips with the fact that you are God's personal enemy. That you have broken his law. That you're a liar. You're an adulterer. And you deserve death because of that. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. Until you come to grips with that and trust in Jesus and his payment for sin on the cross and trust him to pay for your own sin, you're not a Christian. You're a nice-looking kid. You're a church kid. You're polite. You excuse yourself when you need to but you're not one of God's children until you have trusted him for the payment of your own sin. To recognize the things that you have done break his law. But that he offers his son to pay the penalty in your spot. It's a tremendous deal. If you're not sure what that means, then please come and talk to me or one of the other elders at New Covenant before you go. Uh, talk to the person who brought you. Now, you guys that have trusted in Christ, and many of you have, then what's, 
What's the application for you and me? And the application is, is just the very thing that the shepherds do. They proclaim it. The racket they made in Bethlehem in the middle of the night, trying to find this baby. Uh, it seems they might have had to go house to house. Oh, can you imagine? And then they tell people what they've heard, and, and that possibly means they, they retraced their steps. Remember why I woke you 30 minutes ago? Yes. <laughs> and then explaining the whole thing. We found him. He's at the shelter down the road. That's left to us. This proclamation that Christ came for lowly shepherds like you and me. The lowly, low-class uh, shepherds. And you might argue, I'm not a low-class. Well, spiritually speaking, hey, we're all in the same boat, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Spiritually speaking, we're all in the shepherd class. That's the call to you and me, is to proclaim that good news, that the war can be over if you but trust in Christ. Father, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus. Thank you, Savior, for your profound love for lost sinners like us. Thank you that, uh, Father, you announced it to shepherds. And thank you that you are gracious to people who are spiritual down-and-outers. Father, if any of us are here thinking that we're okay uh, when we're not, please convict us, show us that we're at war with you. Lord, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, your Son, help us to imitate the shepherds in proclaiming the great news of a Savior. Jesus, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.